Blog Talk Radio. Oh yeah, stand up and shout. Welcome to Band Radio Show, coming to you each Monday and Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Black Books Rock. We are more than just a niche. We are a movement, says Ella Curry of EDC Creations. Prepare for the most stimulating conversation on the planet. Sit back, relax, enjoy another mind-blowing literary experience. Give to give the knowledge. Put your hands together for your host, Ella D. Curry. Tonight we have another amazing show coming up with author Kofi Annan, and we're going to be discussing his two books, his first book, Bull in a China Shop, Evolution of a Racial Justice Activist, and his new book, Leadership in Action, Five Key Principles of Effective Racial Justice Work. I'm looking forward to tonight's show because we're going to be talking about his time spent in the NAACP, uh, his also about him being a Caribbean American and trying to infuse that into our politics. So allow me to introduce you to Mr. Kofi Annan. Kofi is the author of the award-winning book, Book in a China Shop, Evolution of a Racial Justice Activist, and also Leadership in Action, Five Key Principles of Effective Racial Justice Work. He and his wife founded Fighting Words, LLC, a racial justice and DEI consulting company in 2023. He's the former president of the Activated People, TAP for short, an independent activist organization dedicated to promoting racial equality. Kofi previously served two terms as the president of the Fairfax County, Virginia National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Also, he's the owner of Soul Rebel, a food truck based in Northern Virginia that serves a unique blend of Caribbean Caribbean American fusion cuisine. He served eight years in the U.S. Army and holds a Master's of Science in International Relations from Troy University and a Bachelor's of Science in Criminal Justice with a minor in psychology from Tennessee State University. So join me in welcoming Mr. Kofi Annan to Band Radio Show. Everyone. Hello, Mr. Annan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, excited and I'm really honored to be here. And thank you for coming on to share with us because right now, 
is an ideal time to have this conversation. In the past few weeks, we've had several incidents in the community that led to tragedy, and racism mm-hmm. and equality is at the forefront of conversation, yet one more time. So please yeah. introduce oh, us to your book, Bull in the China Shop, first, and then we'll move on to the second book. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, like you said, um, this this is really an important time uh, in our, you know, to have this discussion. Um, not just with the with the recent passing of uh, Tyree Nichols uh, in Memphis, uh, the recent killing, I should say, uh, of uh, Tyree Nichols, but um, you know, it just, that comes on the heels of the George Floyd. Uh, uh, murder and uh, the movement that, that, that was sparked because of that. Um, and even, you know, in a, another uh, aspect, you know, we have this stuff going on right now, the, the war on, on education and African-American history in the middle of Black History Month. So there's really just, over the last few years, it's really just been a really uh, trying uh, time, uh, really defining time, really, for, for the future of, of our African-Americans um, here in America, and so um, it's really uh, we, we need to continue to have these discussions. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, so the the book Leadership in Action um, that is is so I've, I, after spending um, quite a few years doing civil rights work uh, and uh, racial justice work more specifically, uh, I, I and having some success, I, I wanted to to really impart principles that I had thought were, were, were led to, to some of the successes that um, I was able to have. Um, and so I really had distilled it down to like these five key principles, uh, which are um, to be efficient, uh, to uh, be authentic, to be impatient, um, not compromising uh, your values, and uh, learning the importance of being uh, independent, an independent thinker. Um, I really believe that these were the five things that, that really helped to shape my work and, and my philosophy about how to do racial justice work. And um, I hope that people listening and who is interested in also doing this work uh, would find would find the book useful. Okay. And so with the next um with the next book, Leadership in Action, Five Key Principles for Effective Justice Work. How did you come up with the concept? What was the one key thing that just led you to writing that book now? Um, so, so the Leadership in Action book, uh, so my first book was, was Bull in the China Shop. Um, that was a memoir, and that really kind of, um, it was almost like an autobiography, but it, it, it was really specifically honed in on my journey into civil rights activism. Um, but from that book, um, you'll see there were some threads that were pulled out of that one into into to, to building the, the building blocks for the Five Key Principles book, the Leadership in Action book. Um, and so it, it, it really just kind of came to me as I was writing that I wanted to, to, to kind of do a more distilled version of 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 of, uh, of kind of like an how-to, if you will. Um, I think a lot of what I found is that a lot of um, 
people and organizations, even even organizations that have been doing civil rights advocacy for, for years, including the NAACP, mind you, um, they don't necessarily have like a, a kind of a core philosophy or, or, or how they go about doing it. Um, and so what happens is that they, I think that that leads to a lack of effectiveness in a lot of cases, in, 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 um, even, even when they have really good intentions. Um, so, for instance, I'll just give this quick example. So right after the, the George Floyd uh, protest happened, um, companies uh, um, pledged over $200 billion to, to help support racial justice work. But there was an article that came out just like in uh, this November, December of last year that showed that most of that money never even got spent. Um, and it's still kind of like just there waiting to be spent. Organizations are just trying to figure out, well, what exactly do we do with this money? Um, and I think a lot of, lot of, lot of organizations and, uh, just don't know what to do, just don't know how to go about doing it, don't know what will be most effective. Um, and even the money that was spent wasn't necessarily spent on things that, that led to systemic changes. And that was reiterated in a Washington Post article um, just a couple of weeks ago that, that said just that, that, that most of the you know, things that were done after the George Floyd protest and the whole Black Lives Matter movement, which lasted you know, almost, a, almost a full year, um, weren't, didn't actually have any systemic changes, right? Um, and then, of course, we see that we see the Tyree Nicholas uh, murder that just happened um, not too, a couple of weeks ago, um, and that just really just just exemplifies how the the very thing that we've been asking or or marching and and demanding um, hasn't happened, you know. So there there really is, you know, there really sh- we should kind of step back and say, well, where have we come since this? since the civil rights era, since the 60s, you know, how much have we actually achieved? And we need to be honest with ourselves that we really are kind of stuck in the mud in a way on a lot of these, these issues, even though there are some little things that are, kind of, that are, that are happening, the big muscle movements of, of change has not happened. Um, and, and so we need to be honest with ourselves and, and try to figure out, well, what, what, what needs to happen? What do we need to do differently in order for these things to, act, to actually see some really meaningful changes? So um, um, I, I think it starts with a strategy. I think it starts with some, having some guiding principles, and I think that that this book helps to to lay you know lay, lay out at least my my interpretation of what those guiding principles should be. So when we started um, having a lot of marches, and it became very noticeable that our young black men were being killed in the streets starting even far back as Trayvon Martin, the uh-huh. young people on the ground started coming together, protesting, and starting movements. And one of the movements that people recognized the most that started out of that was Black Lives Matters. And uh-huh. from there young people really have made this a thing with uh, social media in the streets, and they're now being heard. Their mm-hmm. voices are recognized. So how do we work together with the old guard who has ran the NAACP, and they have repped in the community for years fighting? How do we put the more uh, active 
more forward thinking mm-hmm. and progressive younger generations, how do we get them to communicate and work with that old school version of civil rights activism? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um so it's gonna be it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be a challenge because um, I'm a little bit biased, I guess, but I, so I'm I'm kind of like most people are in the middle, right? Like I'm in my 40s. Um, I, I turned 44 this year, um, so I'm not, you know, it, you know, obviously my the, the younger I wouldn't consider myself a younger generation, even though compared to some of the, the 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 folks who've been doing it since the since the 60s, you know, who are now um, more senior citizens. Um, I, you know, I guess they, they, I'm like right in the middle, basically, right, between the two generations. So I, I kind of understand where both sides are coming from. On the one hand, you have the younger generation who is who is frustrated, and they they look at what's happened over the last last 50 years. They have way more access to information through social media, through the internet. Information is travels a lot faster. A lot of information is right at their fingertips. They're not stupid. They understand that you know the the status quo the, the the old ways of doing things has not achieved the things that you know the the level of success that we we should have they understand that that our the wolf gap isn't necessarily any closer they understand that unemployment gap isn't any closer they understand what what um what president biden's crime bill you know 94 crime bill did right they 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 have a really good sense of history and they're very knowledgeable and so a lot of them um, do have some animosity towards the older generation who who basically try to stiff arm them and say no we have to keep doing this this way and I, I think some of that reluctance on the part of the older generation actually is is rooted in the fact that they have a vested interest in protecting the status quo because part they first of all they help to build the systems and the structures that that we see right now right like they help to 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 support the the these um these things. So they're part of, of what's going on right now. They're sitting on these committees. They're in office. They're, you know, the Jim Clyburns, the, you know, like, you know, who, you know, not just the politicians, but the civil rights activists. Like, they're, they, they, they've been there through all of that. So they're vested interest in, in upholding those, those systems. Um, and I also think that in a lot of ways they benefit from that. Um, however, I think that, that, that uh, you know, some kind of a meeting in the middle to say, like, yeah, we respect the what you've done in the past but we also recognize that things have to be done differently um and i i think older generations should should gladly um um you know do a handoff you know to say hey you know we we did we did as good as we as best as we can um you know and that's not disrespectful in any way i myself in my 40s i'm much i'm, I'm happy to, to pass the baton on their, onto a younger younger person to to have them lead. I, I don't believe in like you know older generations should kind of hold on to to these positions um, as long as they do and or or in perpetuity. Uh, a lot of these what what are some of these older generation folks um, forget is that when they started leading, they were in their twenties. You know, so the idea that you have to be seasoned. And be you know in your fifties or sixties to lead it really just doesn't even hold true if if they look at their own um you know entry into into leadership so I might be a little biased but i, I guess if i had to uh, i would say that you know I think some of these um older generation folks should welcome 
some some younger younger folks in, into doing things differently. And and one more quick point I'll make to that. So when I joined the NAACP myself, I was one of those people who just kind of joined and didn't necessarily have it. Well, not necessarily. I didn't have any experience in civil rights advocacy when I when I first joined. I was in my thirties at the time, but um, when I joined uh, the local branch, I was literally elevated to the presidency presidency of that branch that same year, right? There was an election like six, eight months or something like that after I joined, and I, I became the president of that branch. Now, some older folks who were part of that branch trusted me to lead that branch. They they, they basically like, hey, we, we, we want to see you bring some new ideas. And two years later, the branch became uh, recognized by the national NAACP as being the best branch in the country. It, we received what's called the Thalheimer Award for being the best branch in the country. And so that's just a good example of, like, yeah, someone with, with fresh ideas who isn't, who hasn't been part of, of the movement, um, for, you know, for, for decades can still, you know, breathe some life into, into the organization and bring in some, some fresh blood, fresh ideas. So do you think that you're a newness and just starting out and just going hard um, and just really wanting to do the best and have your own idea of how things should be done? Do you think that sometimes that go hard and and new ideas and pushing for it can be a double-edged sword? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll be perfectly honest. yeah, it wasn't all great. Like you know, definitely hit a lot of roadblocks. I mean, or or stumbling, stumbled along the way. Everything wasn't smooth. Um, but I don't think that. I think it was just more good than bad, right? I also feel like, you know, you know, one of so one of the principles I write in the in the book is like you 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 know you don't necessarily have to um, feel like you have to be. Um, so reverent around some of these systems. Don't feel like you have to, to to know everything. You don't need a PhD in civil rights in order to to to, to figure this stuff out, right? Like it's okay if you go in there and you're green and you're messing up a little bit and you aren't, um, you don't really quite understand how all this stuff works. You'll figure it out. Like passion, your passion and your drive is more important than your experience in this stuff because the experience will come, the knowledge of these systems and these politics will come. Um, you, but you know, you'd go in there, be be yourself, and 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 push hard, um, and and I think that's that's a good starting point. So it doesn't, you know, I always say what I, I'll, I'll take passion over experience when when it comes to the people around me any day because I think that that's always just been um, a, a key key uh, the more important um, feature. And I think that this is where the people who have been there, the veterans of these movements and organizations, this is where they should step in and and go back and offer their support uh, because the younger people, younger generations have that passion that drive the energy, and they also oftentimes have the tools and they are willing to mm-hmm. sacrifice 
their mental capacity, their finance, their time. They're, they're able to hit the ground running. And I think that the people who are in higher positions, that's when they should reach back and nurture and support. And like you said, they elevated you to the president of that chapter. That's what I think they should do. I know that's what I do in the literary world. I focus on helping new authors get the word mm-hmm. out about their products because a lot of times they have stories that will impact the community, stories that will lead to change, like your book, Bull in a China Shop. That book discusses you coming of age in Washington, D.C. during the crack cocaine uh, epidemic and then your personal professional experience in the Army and intelligence community. A lot of Mm -hmm. young people need those kind of books, and authors need to be able to tell those stories and get them out to the masses. Um, And for me... I want to be that veteran who has been in business 25 years that's going to practice the Sankofa and reach back and help those coming forward. And I think that's how it should be in the activism. And the one thing that kind of bothered me when Black Lives Matter kind of popped off, I mean, I don't even want to say that, when they when they really accelerated and got the recognition, um, my family mm-hmm. is deep in the NAACP. They are deep in the civil rights. I come from small town in Alabama, and that was everything to my mother's generation. They took offense mm-hmm. to Black Lives Matter. They said that they weren't organized, that they were challenging the police, that they were mm-hmm. rude and disrespectful to the the higher powers in our towns and stuff. I didn't like that because they weren't doing anything when these murders came to life. These young men just on social media being shown lying in the street, they weren't doing anything, but these young people took action. I didn't like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, so so, so, so two things, uh, two points I want to raise. So, um, I, I, in the leadership and action book, I talk about you know being authentic, and and also I, I talk about like my my like you mentioned my my upbringing in, in both in DC and in the intelligence community, and 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 you know my my job, my my training or was uh, uh, prior to you know working on a food truck. <laughs> so my track my, my my job in the military and in the intelligence community was that I was an analyst. Um, so as an as an analyst, one of the, the the skills that you learn is learning how to really do research really well. So research, writing, um, analyzing things, putting pieces, puzzle pieces together, like that was my my skill set. So it's something that I actually I think that really served me well actually when I transferred those skill sets to the NAACP because I was able to bring a, just a different way of approaching um, some old problem sets. Um, and that was lacking, you know, in, in the branch at the time. And I think that that really um, was, you know, you know, we had like <laughs> created like these massive spreadsheets and like in our first meeting and I had like all these committee assignments and I was having like how, you know, it looked like some mad scientist stuff, right? But like that that was that was who I was, right? Like that's that's what I brought to the table. Um, so like you, you just never know what 
what skill sets are going to be the the, the best uh, or are going to serve the organization best. So you should definitely should welcome the young people in because they're probably going to bring something that you hadn't thought of, you know, um, to, to, to the table. So, um, yeah, but as far as the, the, I think a lot of people do look at some of the, the older NAACP branches and recognize that they, they're not there when they – when they need it, need to be there in a lot of these these situations, um, and so there's there's that there's that pain there's, that 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 animosity comes from a, a place of pain, you know. It's like they're 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 seeing their their leaders, if you will, not taking the action necessary to stop the behaviors that that are that are being perpetrated against them and have been perpetrated, and they don't trust these systems. They don't trust the government. They don't trust the politicians. You know, there's a there's a huge trust deficit there um and and it comes from experience it's not ignorance it's not it's not laziness it's not um it's just it comes from their their lived experiences and they should be respected for that i totally agree i totally agree so during your time as the president of the fairfax county uh virginia Virginia NAACP chapter leader, what do you consider your greatest challenges and accomplishments before you left the office? Yeah, so I would say that my my, my greatest challenge, honestly, was the learning curve. You know, like when I say that, I mean because I wasn't, I didn't grow up in in politics. A lot of people who are NAACP are actually just, you know, they they are they're members of the Democratic Party and they spend a lot of their their time and energy serving the Democratic Party. I never did that. I was never really part of that that fold. And so understanding just how connected those two entities were, and and understanding that 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 you, you kind of have to learning how to navigate that right. So I was very independent thinker, a very a very independent thinker. Even though I, I was a Democratic Party member, I wasn't afraid to challenge them, and that caused a lot of tension, right? So the learning curve of understanding um, that, yeah, you could push back against, you know, this the, these folks and 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 um, as much as you want, but that's going to cause a lot of tensions, and and that that eventually will snowball. Like that was that was the the greatest challenge, I think. Um, you know, so because I definitely rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, I was challenging my quote-unquote allies a lot, um, and I, I felt like that was necessary. You know, um, but that that still, you know, that that caused a lot of problems. Um, as far as like my greatest accomplishment, I think the the greatest accomplishment would be change. We 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 led an effort to change uh, the uh, the memorandum of understanding between the police and the the school system. Um, that was a multi multi month or like a six month um, effort where um, we ended up changing uh, how the police interacted with students in the school, at least on paper, how they were how they were supposed to. So. What what led to that was that the the school system back in, I mean the the police back in uh, 2018 came to came to me and said, hey look, you know we want to put um, SROs, school resource officers, in elementary schools. And at the time, I hadn't researched it or anything, so I said, look, let me get back to you. Let me figure out what's what's going on here. 
So I went back and I pulled as much data as I could because I'm kind of a data junkie, right? I like I like crunching numbers, looking to see all the arrests that were made, all of the who was getting, being arrested, what they were being arrested for, creating all these charts and spreadsheets and, and all this other stuff. And uh, come to find out, as as you probably would would imagine, like sixty some percent of the people of the kids that that were charged with anything or arrested um, during during those times were black and Latino students. Now, mind you, they're only about 30% of the entire population of the school district, but they represented about 60, 65% of all those kids that were, were arrested. So I was like, no, that's not right. So, like, I tried to figure out what's, what's behind this. So I started pulling the MOU, the, the Memorandum of Understanding, and find out that uh, it had in there things like the police were allowed to do stop and frisk. There, there, there was no, um, and this was 2018, right? Like we all kind of understand that like, stop and frisk was really bad, like in the 80s. Oh, but yeah. here we are, <laughs> yeah, you know. But here we are, we're in 2018, and it was literally still written into the memorandum of understanding at the school level, right? Um, their, their, their documents, their guiding documents, um, and it just said that the the student, that the police were allowed to quote monitor cultural tendencies within the school, like right after the stop and frisk. So they could monitor the cultural tendencies, quote unquote, cultural tendencies, um, in the school, and then to do stop and frisk. And like that sounds pretty daggone racist to me, <laughs> you know. So yeah, like you can now under <laughs> you can now understand why these numbers are what they are. So. Um, and we also realized that there was no separation between what the officers did and what the administrators did because at the the very first paragraph of the MOU, it said that officers were administrators. Now, that is a clear de- uh, way to try to circumvent the, the Constitution because there's no way that an officer should be treated like an administrator. You, you know, with, the, an administrator with an officer you have your constitutional rights to say, no, I don't want to be searched, no, I don't want to be stopped, and everything else. But if you try to, to make them administrators, well, all of your rights apparently go out the window. So it's like, no, that's not happening. <laughs> you know, so we we ended up rallying, like, the teachers' unions, the PTA, all these different church organizations, and, you know, made everyone aware of all of the, the craziness that was in this, this, this MOU. And we had... Um, basically, like some knockout dragout fights with the school board and the and the uh, board of supervisors for several months. We had a lot of long meetings. We formed a coalition of a lot of different organizations that that got behind this ACLU, all of that, and we ended up changing the MOU and getting a basically a clean one um, with stripped of all of the the the, the terrible things in there, um, and we we saw an immediate drop in the number of arrests for like that first year or so. Now, unfortunately, it didn't hold because, you know, by year two, you know, once the spotlights were off of them, they kind of, the, those numbers started creeping back up. And shortly after that, I made my, I had made my um, exit from the, from the NAACP. But, but yeah, that was, that was a, a very uh, significant um, thing that we had, we had, uh, were able to get done. Now, that's amazing that you were able to put all of that together uh, about what was happening in the school system and the actual superintendents and people that are over the school system. 
weren't getting mm-hmm. that same information and acting on it. No, so, not at all. Not at all. Your wife, uh, you and your wife, founded Fighting Words LLC, a racial justice and diversity, equality, and inclusion consulting company. Tell me about it. DEI has become a big thing right now. It's it's where I think a lot of good work is taking place in those consulting and those who are working as advocates and activists. So tell me a little bit, bit about Fighting Words. Sure, sure. So my wife has always been my, been my uh, my partner in crime. Like she served with me on the board with NAACP. She's a social justice chair for her sorority. She's this social justice um, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and she is, is is something that um, is is in her heart as well. Um, she she currently is a, a DEI uh, director for um, a healthcare uh, or organization right now. Um, and so this is something that's always been in, in her blood and in my blood. So we, we've been along in this journey together for, for like the last, you know, several years. Um, so the idea just kind of came came to us like, you know, this, this might be a good opportunity for us to actually work together professionally as a consulting company because I have my focus, which is more on like the racial justice side and the advocacy side. Um, I could be able to to help to provide some consulting, some training, some some help organizations, uh, leaders who are looking to to go about doing some of this work um, based on my experience. And you also, she also has, um, you know, uh, this is also her profession on the DEI side, um, doing more like the corporate stuff and and things like that. So um, we decided to just put put our our heads together and and um, form form fighting words as both a way to uh, promote both of our services, basically. Okay. So I have never heard of the Activated People Tap. Is that independent mm-hmm. organization still operating? No. So we we decided to, to close shop about mid-last year, actually. So we were around for about three or four years before that. Um, so we we actually formed right around the time when George Floyd protests were, were starting, um, and the the impetus for that really was because there was there was no um, organizing structure in the state of Virginia that was bringing people together to, in order to like get to turn basically turn the energy from the George Floyd movement into legislation, right? Um, and so I thought this was, that, that there was an opportunity there to say, all right, look, there's people in the streets every day. Like this is this is a this is an opportunity for us to try to get some legislation passed. Um, but we aren't going to do it if we're all kind of siloed. So um, uh, tap was we, we started tap, and then we we used that to form a coalition, and we ended up having bringing on like about 35 different organizations statewide in Virginia. To, to to form this this coalition for what we call it the coalition for transforming policing, and through that advocacy efforts and working with legislators, we were able to get about two about a dozen bills passed that were, had to do with police reform that year, um, and so that was kind of the highlight of 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 what TAP was. Now um, after that, I started Soul Rebel, like you mentioned. 
uh, the food truck, and I needed to kind of take a break so I could kind of focus on getting that off the ground. I had decided that I didn't want to work in the government anymore. Um, didn't want to. Uh, I wanted to kind of go off and do my own thing, uh, and I needed to just focus on 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 that. So I took time off from TAP, and unfortunately, we just weren't able to ever able to kind of put the band back together after taking that break. Um, so. You know, a couple years later, we we decided to formally end uh, TAP. Now, that makes me think about a couple of things that I have wanted to have a conversation and maybe even a panel discussion, which I may do later on during Black History Month, and that is the sacrifices that activists and advocates make in their lives during these movements. Um, you sacrifice okay. your mental, you sacrifice your finances, your time. Even some people have sacrificed the safety of their families. Um, and the one thing I don't hear people talk about enough, and I know a lot about it, from my younger cousins working in the community is that activists normally, well, a lot of the time, they are putting in their own money. They're paying for their own travel. Mm -hmm. They're putting these defense funds together to get people out of jail during the disruptions. Uh, they're, you know, they're putting money in to rent space and provide refreshments. And then they're sacrificing their mental. So when you said you stepped back from government for a while and chose to start a new business, and step away. That brings me to this conversation. Let's talk about the sacrifices you mentally and financially, and even sometimes spiritually, had to deal with in trying to fight mm -hmm. for, you know, the uh, racial equity, equality for us. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Um there was one time where I was at work. This was in the middle of the, the George Floyd uh, protest. And I had a coworker come up to me and just kind of casually ask, Hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? You know? Um, and I don't know why, but for some reason, right in that moment, it just hit me that like, I actually really thought about how I was doing. And and I, I just, like, froze up, and I actually realized at that point that, like, I, I started crying. Like, I, I started, like, crying, like, right then and there. And I had to leave. I just had to go home. Like, and I was like, I'm not doing okay. You know, it's really tough, like, when you're dealing with this stuff every single day, not just as a black person, but also as someone who is fighting for these issues yourself. Um you know, so it's like you there. There's no there's no escape. Like you come home at night and you're you're dealing with this. You know, this is like what you you're up till, you know, all hours of the night, like writing, you know, letters or 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 researching or or you know watching videos or or whatever. And and you know, like yeah, you you, you this is a life that you chose. So I'm not necessarily asking for sympathy or anything like that. But it is it is very stressful. Um, and it is a huge sacrifice that, that activists do take on, and they don't get nearly the credit for this that they deserve, honestly. Um, 
and I'm not, you know, not, <laughs> sound like I'm fishing for for credit or anything like that. But for for, for all the activists out there, you know, the it, it, I really believe that they deserve the lion's share of of the credit. And people most of the time don't even know who they are because they're not the ones. They don't have like the the meat access to media necessarily. They don't have they don't have the the huge apparatus of like a political party that's going to pump their names out there and show the world and, you know, and have people recognize what they do. A lot of times politicians will try to take credit for the work that they're, that they're fighting for. You know, I can't tell you how many times where I was, you know, pushing for something when it finally got passed, I hear, you know, like the police chief say, yeah, I went out and I did X, Y, and Z. I'm like, no, you didn't. You fought me tooth and nail for that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. like you, did, you did that because I've been beating you over the head to to get it done for months, you know, or a politician say, yeah, we were just about to do that. No, you weren't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, and so, like, that type of stuff happens all the time. Like, and, and so, like, people just don't really quite understand or appreciate just the, the fact that, um, it's particularly when it comes to racial justice issues, if the government does anything, anything favorable, it's because some activist out there was beating them over the head with it for years probably, you know. And so um, really the activist community deserves a lot a lot more recognition um, for, for how things get done and when things get done than people realize. Exactly. I agree wholeheartedly because um, I have watched, especially I have some friends in Chicago, and when they were fighting Mm -hmm. against their uh, police brutality and all the fraudulent things that was happening within that whole community and organization, I watched my friends in Chicago, some of them lose their jobs because they were so outstanding spoken in the community. Some of them were being uh, really um, targeted to shut them up. And so I've Mm -hmm. seen all sides of it working. uh, And a lot of the people who I represent that put their books out, like your book, Bull in a China Shop, they're telling their stories of their burnout and how they were targeted by the police for speaking out and how even – the older people in the community and older leaders, much like some of the chapter leaders of the NAACP and other organizations mm-hmm. like that, they wanted to quiet them. They wanted them to stop stirring the pot because it was messing up their things, but it wasn't changing mm-hmm. stuff in the community for, like, you you know, the schools, the kids in the school being just really tormented and that sort of thing. Now, that brings me to another yeah. question. Why did you choose the title of your memoir as Bull in a China Shop? Yeah, um, so the, you know, so, so first of all, all those points you just raised are are so um oh so spot on um unfortunately there 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 does tend to be you know some some tensions but again you know generational tensions and and things like that um uh because of the some of the stuff that we're we're doing here um and it's really sad it's really unfortunate um but but the the title bull in the china shop um so it's actually a story behind that so when I left the NAACP not on the best terms. Um, I, it was really out of frustration with my predecessor. Um, we had this uh, this incident uh, 
where, and I tell this story in, in, in the Bull in the China shop, uh, but I um, ended up resigning a, a few months earlier than, than in, uh, during my second term um, after, some, you know, after this incident. So I'll, I'll try to make the story as brief as possible. So there was a, a, a shooting in, in Fairfax County in a black community uh, a, a couple of years back. And um, the police came out immediately and said this was like a gang-related incident. There was no evidence that any gangs were involved. Um, it was really just something that he felt comfortable saying because it was black males in, um, involved there, um, and that's the narrative he wanted to, to, to put out there. Um, I suspect some of it has to do with financial finances and, and being able to get money funneled into the, the gang task force, which is a whole nother, we could talk about that, I let another advocacy effort to try to stop the use of the term gangs because that's really misused totally. No, nevertheless, um, so there was, we had, there was a town hall there um, and I was um, speaking up in, in, as to try to get the police to say, look, investigate the crime. You, you don't even have any suspects. You don't even have any names. You don't have anything. So let's let's just stop throwing labels, stigmatizing this entire community as some kind of gang-infested community, because I thought that that could have some negative ramifications for how we how that community is treated. Um, and I had my my predecessor at the time who was sitting next to the uh, the, the superintendent, uh, the county superintendent um, supervisor. And up on up on this you know uh, up on that stage there, and was Facebook living me at the time and saying all these lies about me on Facebook Live that I didn't even know was happening at the time. I didn't realize till later on that night. Um, and so I go back, and when I you know I get home at like eleven o'clock at night for like the, the third or fourth time that 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 week. Um, from doing this type of work, and I'm really, you know, tired, exhausted, you know, and I go in and I, and I go on Facebook and I see this mom that I'm tagged in this 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 video, and I sent her a really nasty text message. Anyway, so she decides to make that text message public, um, and I feel like the reason for and the reason I, I told that story in the book and the reason I'm, I'm retelling it now is because I feel like that there is some uh, it, it really represents a, a, a dynamic that's always existed here in America where you have the, the white power structures being able to use some members of the black community to undercut and undermine people who were stirring the pot, like myself, or people who were, you know, to try to suppress the masses, if you will. Um, and so that whole thing blew up. Um, I decided I wanted to walk away from the organization shortly after that. And I, but I had a meeting with the chairman of the board of supervisors at the time, Chairman Sharon Bolivar, after everything had died down. Me and her went out to get some coffee. I wanted to kind of, you know, smooth things over because this is all she was also on her way out. Um, uh, she was, she was uh, not running for another term. And so we sat down and had coffee, and she said, you know, Ikofi, you really came in here like a bull in a china shop. And that's how, you know, and she didn't necessarily mean it as a matter of endearment or anything like that. I fully understood that she meant that I came in here and I was disruptive and, you know, um, I was, you know, breaking some plates. I was breaking some china up in there. Um, <laughs> but, 
but I but I, I I also embraced it, you know. I was like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you may not necessarily mean this as as a as a good thing, but I feel like sometimes you have to be willing to break some plates. You know, you got to move you got to move some furniture around in this place in order to get anything done. And I believe that that was the reason I was able to get as much done as I did was because I was a bull in a china shop. And I think we need to have more people who are willing to be bulls in the china shop in order to to, to get stuff done. You can't necessarily go in, into these places and, and be so reverent and so respectful of these systems. These are the same systems that they, that they literally negotiated our humanity under, you know. And so, like, you, you don't have to – you don't have to if you don't respect them good for you <laughs> you know if you, if you want to break I, something I, do it <laughs> i laugh a little bit at the title and the story because my younger uh activist cousins they're they're in their 40s and some of them younger and then i have my aunts who are very influential in the different um alumni for colleges and NAACP, they butt heads a lot because I think my young cousins may be bulls in china shops too because they don't mind disrupting, shaking things up, tearing it apart, and they will call you out on your stuff. So I think it is. I I love, love, love that title, and I think it is necessary sometimes to wake people up, give them a new perspective. Even if you don't like it, it can get you thinking and talking. It can bring people to the table at least. And, you know, I love it. I love that title. So um, now I'd like for you to read from your new book, Leadership in Action, Five Key Principles of Effective Racial Justice Work. Um, I'm going to mute myself. A little mute. (laughs) I'm going to (laughs) mute. (laughs) I'm going to mute myself so that we can get a good read from the book because I really want to share this. There are a lot of people who want to be leaders. There are a lot of young people I see that are already leaders, but they need a little guidance. So I really want to share this across social media. So I'm going to go quiet for just a few minutes, and I'd like for you to give us the title of the book and read from the book. Thank you. Okay, this reading is from Chapter 5, The Fifth Principle. Uh, of, of being independent. And um, I would like to start off with a quote from James Baldwin. It goes, it is very nearly impossible to become an educated person in a country so distrust, distrustful of the independent mind. And that was a quote from James Baldwin. While I was serving as an NAAC president, uh, chapter president, an opportunity arose for me to run for a statewide office. Until the vacancy became available, I had only given the idea of running for office a few passing thoughts. But enough Democratic Party insiders approached me uh, with the uh, pr- uh, proposition of running that I was intrigued to give it a shot. At the time, becoming a a politician seemed like a natural progression from an activist uh, operating outside of the system to becoming an elected official on the inside with a seat at the table and an ability to write and pass the laws I knew the people wanted. So I quit my government job 
to avoid violating the Hatch Act, a law which is designed to prevent government employees from getting too engrossed in partisan politics, and threw my name in the ring. Despite having no experience running for office and no campaign manager, I managed to finish second in a four-person primary, 117 votes behind the winner. It was a bummer losing, but in hindsight, it was a blessing in disguise. I now realize that had I won, I would have lost my autonomy and ability to fight for what I believe in. I now realize that you can only serve one master effectively and fully, either the people or the party. You might be questioning my logic because many are bought into the idea that politicians reflect, serve, and answer to the people. But this is only partially correct. The truth is that politicians answer to the party first, donor second, and the people third. I love it. I love it. And I agree with every point you just made wholeheartedly, and I'm glad to get that on the record (laughs) (laughs) so that we can have some future conversations. Now, in your book, Leadership in Action, there are five principles outlined in the book. What would you say is the Mm. most important principle? From the one I just read, being independent. Um, being independent. I, I really believe, yeah, definitely being independent. Um, I, I believe that 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 was the thing that really got me to to put the pressure on to. Okay, so for, for instance, here in in Fairfax County, uh, there really are no no Republicans in charge, right? Um, I believe there. Yeah, there's one board of supervisors member um, who is out of nine who is Republican. All the school board is, is, is Democrat. All the rest of the board supervisors are, are Democrat. Um, but there's, you know, so it's it's harder for, you know, given the fact that black people, majority, 90-some percent of us vote Democrat, it's, it's, it's harder for us to challenge them, right? But I feel like it's, it's really important that we that we we do remain independent and 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 um, you know stick to the to the to the saying. There's a saying that goes that there there are no permanent friends, only permanent interests. Like if uh-huh. you're fighting for racial justice, you have to maintain the fact that you have permanent interests and not be so friendly and and be so worried about losing friends in the party because. The people in the, in the Democratic Party, in my opinion, they will use the fact that you, you, you and them are friends and use that as an excuse not to work as hard for you, right? Um, that's not to say the Republicans are better. It's just to say that you, you're, sometimes you have to push your friends and you have to be willing to, to ruffle their feathers too because if you don't, um, they will still ignore your interests. And it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what party they belong to. Like, you have to have your own agenda, and you have to be willing to push that agenda as hard as independently as possible in order to, to make things happen. And that's a, that's a real challenge. That was, the, that was my, my biggest challenge because the people around me who are so used to being playing nice, um, you know, and so used to, to you know, particularly, like, like we said, like some of the older, older guards, they're so they're so cozy with some of these these leaders in these in this uh, office um, that that once you start challenging them, it, it just kind of they, they don't know what to do with you. <laughs> you know, they just want to get you out of here as quick as possible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so in leadership in action, uh, you discuss learning how to be efficient, 
valuing your authentic pathway to advocacy and skills to, to bring to the table, understanding that being impatient isn't necessarily a negative trait, knowing when to stand firm and not to compromise, and to value your independence. And those are some very foundational elements, but I think they're important to get out there because in order to organize, you're going to have to really sound out and think about some of those pathways. So how can Mm -hmm. my listeners and band radio show and Black Pearls magazine, how can they purchase both of the books, Bull in the China Shop and Leadership in Action? Um, So they're both available on our website, 42fightingwords.com. That's the number 42fightingwords.com, or they're also available on Amazon. Um, they're going to be available more broadly in the coming weeks than other places like, you know, uh, eBay, Walmart, and everything else. Um, but for right now, uh, the best way to get it is through 42fightingwords.com or through um, uh, Amazon. And it's well, available thank you, thank as well. Thank you for sharing with us and uh, really pouring into the community and our young people and fighting for us in the service and in the community. I look forward to sharing your books and your story, this interview, across the web because our young people need to feel supported and understood. They need to be seen and heard and understand that there are people out there who understand and are in this fight with them. So thank you so much for serving um, in the community and the professional level and uh, doing your time in service. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about the book and, and, and just talk about the principles. And just It was just a great conversation. I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing as well. Well, thank you. So now, Band Radio Show Family Black Pearls Magazine, please take this time to like this show, comment on this show, and share it. Most importantly, share it. If you can share this show with 10 people, it's amazing, amazing how many people we will reach, how many people will gain some inspiration and education and motivation from the show. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us tonight as we chatted with Mr. Kofi Annan and about his work in the community and his books. Please do us a favor, support Mr. Annan and support Band Radio by sharing this show. And leave your comments below. And most importantly, let's purchase those books to give as gifts. Buy a copy for you and share one with a young person in your life. Thank you for joining Band Radio Show tonight, and I'll be right back here next week with another impactful show. Good night, family. <laughs>